I've been spending rather a great deal of time considering the one other passages of Scripture. We find that there are many places in the Scripture that teach us how we are to treat or respond to one another. We began the series by stressing the need to appreciate those for whom Christ died. Christ died not just for me, but Christ died for us. He died for a people. He died to bring us into a relationship with each other and to himself. And so we found that we have a responsibility to one to another because of Christ having died for us. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. So I have a responsibility to my brother, my sister in Christ. Last week, we focused upon the necessity of treating one another in the way in which Christ treated us. We talked about how Christ raised the ante, if you will. We know the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto yourself. But last week, we focused on the thought that we are to do unto others the way that Christ did unto us. Or we are to treat others the way that Christ treated us. Ephesians 4.32 Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. There is a great danger that we face when we study the scriptures, and in a particular way, in the way in which we study the one other passages. That danger is to focus on someone else rather than to focus on ourselves. It's easy to sit here and say, oh, I wish so-and-so would have heard that message, rather than saying, well, that message is valuable for me. Or, in, more in particular, when we hear the one other passages, to think about Well, I don't know if people treat me that way and get upset with the fact that people don't treat me the way that the one another passages say I ought to be treated as opposed to looking at oneself and saying, I wonder if I'm treating others the way that I should. We've got to guard against that danger. That kind of focus is going to have unintended consequences. Such a focus, that is, when we focus on others rather than ourselves, rather than bringing us together, it's going to foster even a greater disunity. Rather than bringing peace, it's going to bring even a greater discontentment. Rather than bringing healing, it's actually going to prove to be more harmful, for we are going to become upset, feeling that we have not been treated the way that we ought. Well, the passage before us makes it impossible for us to do that. It makes it impossible for us to lay it on the other person and to look at the one other passage and say, well, that's not how they're treating me. This passage will not allow that at all. The passage before us forces us to examine ourselves and not others. The one another passages take on an even greater significance because of the inseparable or indivisible relationship that God has to his people. This passage teaches us 
that not only should we treat others the way that Christ has treated us, that was last week, but the ante again is raised. It just keeps going up. Now we learn that the way we treat our brother and sister in Christ is the way that we treat Christ himself. Let me say that again. The way we treat our brother and sister in Christ is the way that we treat Christ himself. That's how important it is that we treat one another way we should, for the way we treat one another is the way that we treat Christ. Now let me unpack that for you as we look at this, this passage. First, an overview of the passage and then some concluding lessons. The passage begins with a look at Jesus on his judgment throne. Verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and the all angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. The, uh, the uh, emphasis is on the magnificence of the beauty, the glory, the tremendous majesty of Christ's coming. When he returns, he's going to sit on his throne, and when he sits on his throne, he's going to judge. And all people groups will come before the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice verse 32. Before him will be gathered all the nations. All the nations. Now, when we think of the word nations, we should not think of our English word nations in terms of geographical regions under separate governments. That's not what is in view. What is meant here by nations are ethnic groups. Every ethnicity, every language group, as said in the book of Revelation, every tribe and tongue and people and nation. All peoples are going to be gathered before the throne. That is the emphasis. Every single human being will appear before Christ. And all people, out of this Incredible diversity, and we hear so much today about diversity and different ethnic groups. But in this day of judgment, all of mankind is going to be reduced to but two groups. All the divergence is going to come together under two specific heads. Notice verse 32. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and now this, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep. He will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. All the peoples are going to be divided into just two groups. They're going to be the sheep and they're going to be the goats. Those who are the sheep are placed on the right side of Jesus and will have a part in the kingdom. Verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared from you, for you from the foundation of the world. So we learn in this verse that those on the right are blessed of the father. They are blessed in the sense that they are going to inherit a kingdom. Verse 34. And this kingdom has been prepared for them before the foundation of the world. This kingdom is not an afterthought. This kingdom is the centrality to the plan and will of God. It was what was in focus when God created the heavens and the earth. 
It was what was in focus when God created man. His kingdom. His kingdom. Those on his right are going to inherit that kingdom. Those who are placed on the left side of Jesus will not have a part in that kingdom. They are going to be separated from Jesus. Notice verse 41. Then it will say to those on his left, depart from me. They will no longer have any relationship, fellowship, concord with Jesus. They are not blessed of the Father, but rather are damned or cursed. Verse 45. Depart from me, you cursed. And they will not enter into a place of rest, but into a place of misery and hardship that have been prepared for the devil and his angels. Verse 45. Into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Then he gives the reason. It's important to understand that the reason is evidential, not causative. What I mean by that is he's going to talk now about the righteous and the unrighteous. But this is not the reason for their being righteous or unrighteous, but it is evidence of their being righteous or unrighteous. Here are examples of what it means to be righteous. Verse 35, four, four, it's the reason. But it's an evidential reason, not a causative reason. And verse 42, four, again, an evidential reason, not a causative reason. The difference in the way that the righteous are treated and the way in which, uh, excuse me, the difference in the way that the, the righteous treated Jesus and the way in which the unrighteous treated Jesus is what is stressed. Notice the righteous. Notice how they treated Jesus. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. The eyes and the me's are absolutely essential. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, you clothed me. I was sick, you visited me. I was in prison, you came to me. The unrighteous are described in the way in which they failed to treat Jesus. Notice verse 42. I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty. You gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Now we're going to slow down and look at the significance of what was just said. Both groups, the righteous and the unrighteous, are shocked by what Jesus just said. 
Both groups, the righteous and the unrighteous, are shocked by what Jesus just said. They weren't expecting that at all. Notice their surprise. First, the righteous are shocked, for they fail to remember doing any of these things for Jesus. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothed you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? Jesus, when did we do that to you? We don't remember that at all. We don't remember seeing you in prison. We don't remember seeing you naked. We don't remember seeing you sick. We don't remember any of these things. When did we do that to you? And the unrighteous are equally shocked. For they do not remember failing to do these things for Jesus. Verse 44. Then they also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? When did we see that, Lord? We never saw you naked. We never saw you in prison. We never saw you sick and failed to do these things. Jesus gives a startling response. And it is one that should cause us to sit up and take notice in a very unique way. What is startling is that Jesus says that he is inseparable from his people. The way that God's people is treated, or God's people are treated, is viewed as the way that Christ is treated. Now notice verse 40. The king will answer them, Truly I say to you, truly, verily, emphasizing the aspect that this is right, this is true, this sounds odd to you, but this is the truth. This is the way it really is. Truly I say to you, as you did it to the one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. The way I treat my brother is viewed as the way I treat Christ. Positively, and negatively. Do you see how the Andy has just been raised? You see how we can't just gloss over these one another passages? It's one thing to say, I ought to treat others the way that Christ treated me. It's quite another to say, you know, the way I treat my brother is the way I treat Christ. If I have a problem with my brother, I have a problem with Christ. We have moved in this study from the way that we treat one another is the way that 
Christ has treated us to today, the way that we treat one another is the way that we recreate, we treat Jesus. To withhold acts of kindness, mercy, and compassion from our brother or sister in Christ is to withhold kindness, mercy, and compassion from Jesus himself. That's what this passage says. To bestow acts of mercy and compassion and kindness to our brother or sister in Christ is to show kindness, mercy, and compassion to Jesus himself. Today, we can't possibly turn this passage on its head. It's impossible. I can't be thinking about others anymore. I've got to be thinking about me. For we will all stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. Every one of us. And we're going to be judged on how I treated my brother. Not how my brother treated me. Nothing is going to be said about how my brother treated me. When I stand before Christ, it's about how I treated my brother. And further, the way I treated my brother is the way I treat Jesus. That if I was kind to my brother, if I was compassionate to my brother, if I was gracious to my brother, then I was kind and compassionate and gracious to Christ. If I was angered toward my brother, if I was discompassionate, if I was miserable, if I was cruel, if I was unrelenting, if I was apathetic, if I was indifferent to my brother, then I was all those things to Christ. For the way that we treat others is viewed as the way that we treat Christ. Verse 40. Truly I say to you, as you did it to the one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Truly I say to you, verse 45, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. The way that I treat my brother and sister in Christ is viewed by God as the way that I treat Jesus. Now, lest you think that this is some obscure idea that is unique to this passage, and maybe even Lee might struggle and say, but does that passage really say that? Well, it does. Let me show you another passage of Scripture. Turn with me to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. Familiar portion of Scripture to many. It's Paul on the road to Damascus. At this point in time, the Apostle Paul is not yet converted. He's not yet a Christian. He's not a follower of Christ. And Paul, who's not yet called Paul, but Saul, is in the process of persecuting the church. So notice Acts chapter 9, verse 1. But Saul, he's the one who's going to become the Apostle Paul. 
But before his conversion, he's referred to as Saul. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. So he's threatening the followers of Christ, and he's trying to murder the followers of Christ. Went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogue at Damascus so that he might so that if he found any belonging to the way, that is, any who were following Christ, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light shone from heaven around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul. Now notice these words. Why are you persecuting me? This is the risen Lord. This is after the death and resurrection. Christ has ascended into heaven. Christ appears to Paul on the road to Damascus in a vision. And he says to him, Why are you persecuting me? Jesus is in heaven. How is Paul persecuting Jesus? Paul's persecuting Jesus because he's persecuting Jesus' followers. He's persecuting Jesus because he's persecuting the church. He's persecuting Jesus because he's asked for these letters. To have people killed and bound and take to Jerusalem. But the point is that to persecute the people of God is to persecute Jesus himself. Which is the very thought in our passage. That what we do to our brother or sister in Christ is viewed as doing to Jesus himself. These are not isolated passages. It's the kind of thought that's so easily glossed over when you read the scriptures. Listen to this verse, Matthew 10, verse 40. He who receives me receives him who sent me. And he who receives me receives him who sent me. John 13, 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, he, whoever, he who receives whomever I send receives me. And he who receives me receives him who sent me. If you receive my followers, you have received me. If you reject my followers, you have rejected me. It goes on and on. The way that I treat my brother and sister in Christ is viewed as the way in which I treat Christ himself. He is indivisibly separable from his people. That is a profound thought. Now the ante has been raised. Now I just can't be upset with my brother or sister in Christ. I never should have been. We should have been concerned that Christ died for my brother and sister in Christ. 
We should have been concerned that Jesus taught us that we're to treat one another the way that we have been treated. All of those things should have concerned us. But now, if none of that got to us, if we were somehow able to forget about all that, if somehow we were able to turn that on its head and get upset with the way that my brother and sister treated me rather than the way in which I treated them, then understand that the way I treat my brother and sister in Christ is viewed as the way I treat Jesus. If I have a problem with them, I have a problem with him. If I've offended them, I've offended him. If I won't forgive them, I won't forgive him. Christ and his people are inseparable. Is it any wonder that on the judgment day, the people were shocked? Let me ask you, are we going to be shocked on the judgment day when we are going to be evaluated by the way in which we treat each other and find out that Jesus is going to say, you did that to me. That nice deed you did, you did to me. That compassion you showed, you showed to me. That malice that you harbored in your heart, you harbored toward me. That lie that you told, you told against me. Summary statement, and it's a powerful one. Matthew 25, 46. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Again, we're talking here not about causative, but evidential. Love for one another is a true mark of discipleship. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have love one to another. We know that verse, and I think probably just about anybody in, that, in this room could repeat that verse by memory. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have love one to, to another. That's the mark of a discipleship. That's the mark of a person being born again. Again, listen to passages of Scripture that so easily are just shrugged off. Listen to this one. If we will not forgive one another, Christ will not forgive us. Let me say that again. If we will not forgive one another, Christ will not forgive us. How many people believe that's true? Jesus taught us to pray. Matthew 6.12 Forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. We invite God to forgive us the way that we forgive each other. How comfortable are you with that? To pray, Lord, forgive me in the same way that I forgive my brother. Or would you like to be forgiven in a different way than which you 
forgive your brother. And you say, well, that's not the same thing. That's not what you said, Pastor. You, you didn't say that we ought to pray and say, you know, uh, forgive me the way I forgive my brother. You said, if we don't forgive one another, then Christ won't forgive us. That's right. That's what I said. Because for, verse 15 says this, but if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you your trespasses. Let me read that again. If you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you your trespasses. I don't know how that can be more clear. Jesus also provided us with a parable. A parable of a servant who was forgiven a great debt, but in turn refused to forgive a fellow servant a small debt. And the end of the parable works this way. And in anger, his master, that is the one who forgave his servant a great debt, delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. If you refuse to forgive your brother, Christ will refuse to forgive you. That's what it says. And you can play all kinds of theological mumbo-jumbo to get around it, but that's what it says. This is not salvation by works. Rather, it is a statement of the realization of the Holy Spirit at work in our lives. The fruit of the Spirit is love, Joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, faith, maintenance, temperance, self-control. If you are born again, the Holy Spirit indwells and resides in you. If you have been born again, God has brought you into a heavenly family. God has brought you in relationship to himself and to the rest of his children. So that we do call each other brothers and sisters in Christ. And if you have been born again, God has brought you into a familial relationship in which now you appreciate your brother and sister in Christ. You love them, you care for them. Those who are in Christ Jesus are different people. And they appreciate the new body to which they belong. This sermon wasn't intended to try to bring fear into your relationship to Jesus Christ or your salvation. But it was intended to bring a sobriety to what we may think are insignificant issues. These one other passages are not just fluffy Nice ideas of how it would be great for Christians to live. But they are saying, really listen again to what they are saying. They are saying, Christ died not for you, Christ died for us. Therefore, we have a responsibility to each other. Christ has taught us, as I have treated you, treat one another. 
And now Christ teaches us the way that I respond to one another is the way that I respond to him. Shouldn't we be sober? Shouldn't we be reflective? Shouldn't we be humble? Shouldn't we take upon us the responsibility of showing the love and care to my brother that God had planned and intended before the foundation of the world? We are going to one day be in heaven. One day, there is going to be people from every tongue and tribe and people and nation gathered together. They're the sheep. The sheep hear my voice. And we will be there. And we will be there in perfect harmony. We will be there in perfect peace. We will be there in perfect joy. We will celebrate with each other for all eternity future. Working together. Serving together. Glorifying God together. That is what God planned, intended, and achieved before the foundation of the world. We are in the process of moving towards that place. And in that process, we are to be readying ourselves. And how do we do it? By fulfilling all the one another passages. About bringing a little heaven to this earth. A place where there will be no more tears, no more sorrow, no more crying, no more heartache, no more misery. How much of that could be had in this life if we treated each other the way in which the scripture teaches us to treat one another? How many tears could be avoided? How many hurts could be healed? How much unrest can turn into peace? How much angst into joy? If we would just focus on ourselves and say, the way I treat others is the way that I treat Jesus. And I want to treat Jesus with kindness and compassion and goodness. May we all strive to treat Jesus that way by treating each other the way that we should. And may we, on the day of judgment, hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant, as acts of kindness and goodness are reflected that we have shown to others and Christ will say, you did that to me. You did that to me. You served me in that way. Thank you. Let's pray. Our Father, help us to realize that the way that we treat one another is going to be viewed as the way we treat you. May that be sobering. May that cause us to really stop and think about our actions, our attitudes, our relationships with one another. Oh, Lord, help us not to focus on others. Help us to focus on ourselves. Help us to think about our standing before you and being before you what we ought to be. To your praise, to your glory, and to your joy. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.